Last spring, the news uh, hit me like a punch in the gut. I had uh, gone out for lunch, just kind of by myself to grab something quick and scrolled through social media, and I saw a story that grabbed my heart. A couple that I went to college with lost their 10-year-old son in a house fire. And I just sat there in the parking lot and just grieved for them and prayed for them. A couple of weeks later, uh, the friend, a friend of my youngest son, who was in sixth grade at the time, lost his father when he didn't come out of what everybody thought was going to be a routine surgery. And a 12-year-old boy had lost his dad. And a couple of months after that, some dear family friends of mine and Emily's lost their 17-year-old grandson in a single-car accident. And I was just reminded of the questions that we all legitimately have. Like, what are we supposed to do when life goes wrong? And can I just say, I'm not talking about when life goes wrong because we do something stupid, right? Have you ever had life go wrong because you did something stupid, okay? This, this, we all raise our hand, right? I'm not talking about that. Sometimes you play by the rules and you feel like you're doing everything right and it just comes out of nowhere. A loved one dies way before their time. A health crisis derails our future. A relationship that we thought was gonna last forever abruptly ends and wrecks our life. Company layoffs come out of nowhere. And we're all forced to ask this question, what are we supposed to do when life goes wrong? And there's no better day to kick off this series than today. 21 years ago, this morning, thousands of people went to work in Washington, D.C., in New York City, or got on one of four planes, and everything went wrong. And the families, our nation, the whole world felt the wrongness of it all. And it's not like we're not still feeling it, seeing it, experiencing it. Mass shootings, which seem monthly. Kidnappings. Kidnappings. Murders of joggers. Earthquakes. Hurricanes. And war. We've all felt those, the weight of that, and we've experienced it. How are we supposed to respond when life goes wrong? And I, listen, by the end of this four-week series, I wish that I, what I could tell you is I, what you've got to look forward to is I'm going to tell you how to steer clear of life going wrong. But you'd know I was selling you some oceanfront property in Arizona, right? I mean, that, you know it's not true. What I hope by the end of this series is that we can find we can find some hope in clinging to the one thing that we can cling to in a chaotic world, and it is what has mattered all along.
And by the end of our time today, I want to give you some truth that might can help you be ready for the next time life goes wrong. Because we all hope it won't, but we know that it could. And maybe it even will. Before I kind of go on, I want to just take a moment and just lift up a prayer right now for those on this day of all days who still, um, still mourn the loss of a loved one in 9-11. So would you just join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, this morning as we come to try to find hope and answers when our lives go wrong, Lord, we're just reminded on this morning of families that still mourn the loss of loved ones when life went terribly wrong 21 years ago today. And we would pray, God, that you continue to wrap those families in your love and mercy and care. And Lord, help us, help us to cling to the truth of who you are when life goes wrong. In Jesus' name, amen. I find that when life grows wrong, there are kind of three reflexes, and two of them I think are incorrect and very harmful, and I have seen do so much damage to people's faith. So I want to talk about those before we get into this this Bible story and this character that we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks. When life goes wrong, this is one of the first reflexes, is we kind of go to, hey, God calls this. That the reason life went wrong is that this is, so you say like, oh, what do, you, what do you mean? This is when people say stuff at funerals like, you know, well, the Lord just needed another little angel. Or sometimes we just don't understand God's plan. What kind of God plans to take 10-year-old boys in house fires? What kind of God plans to wipe out villages with a hurricane? It simply doesn't reflect the heart of God. And it certainly doesn't help our faith. And and listen, here's what I know is true is that we want somebody to blame. We want there to be some kind of master plan. and, And God seems like an easy target right? I mean, he just seems like an easy target. And so just let me just say right up front, I don't think God caused your life to go wrong. Now, I don't think God causes life to go wrong. I don't think that's the heart of what the scriptures teach us. The scriptures say that every good and perfect gift is from above. Good gifts, perfect gifts. But what this series is all about is the huge difference between God causing something to go wrong and God using something that went wrong. And he can absolutely use it because he's a God that makes beauty from ashes. The second reflex that we have is this. Well, God left this. Well, the reason this has happened is God has just given up on me. God has forgotten me. God is, you know, I mean, listen, he, he, that, the wrong is evidence that God has given up on us, doesn't really love us. If God was for us, then he'd stop the bad stuff from happening. happening. He would heal the disease. He would repair my marriage. He would send a magic check in the mail to cover my financial shortfall. 
right? I mean, like if God was really for us, then, then it, it, we, we, it's because we believe this, because we bought into the idea that everything would be hunky-dory if we had faith in God. And when everything isn't hunky-dory, then it's just evidence, then God must have just left. But I want to tell you, I don't think that when your life goes wrong, it is evidence that God has given up on you, that God left this. Instead, what I think we're going to see in this series through this incredible character in the story is this, that God is in this. It might be terrible. It might be painful. But I think what we're going to find is God is in this. God is with us. And if we will stay with him, we will stay with him when life goes wrong. We are going to see a God who makes beauty from ashes. We are going to see a God who brings resurrection after death. This is the God that we serve. And here's what I believe why this is so important. Why this is so important for you to stick with this, hang with God. You have no idea what God wants to do in your life if you will just stick with him when life goes wrong. We're going to see so many examples in the next four weeks of this guy. He could have left. He could have given up. But you have no idea what God wants to do in your life if you would just stick with him, if you would just trust him when life goes wrong, and I know this is important because some of you are in the middle of the wrong right now. Right now, you are in the middle of the wrong, and what I just want to, want to tell you is that God is in this. So this character that we're going to look at is a man named Joseph in the book of Genesis. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and Joseph's story spans about the last 14 of 50 chapters in Genesis. So he, he is a really major character in, in kind of the beginning stages of the nation of Israel. And he is someone for whom life went wrong, and then it went wronger. I, I don't think that's a word, but I'm inventing it for this series. Because we're just going to see you like, man, it was wrong, and then it went wronger and wronger, and it just kept getting worse. It just kept going more wrong. But I want to tell you the end of the story of Joseph's story so that we can understand the beginning of his story. So here's the end of the story. Joseph ends up in the C-suite of the most powerful empire in the world. That's right. He ends up second command to the king, and it is his leadership and his wisdom that saves the empire, Egypt, and his own people. He saves the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, he is almost, this is almost like a superhero kind of story. Joseph literally saves the world. He literally saves the world. It is his leadership. It is his smarts, his wisdom, his discernment of what he feels God telling them to do and him following through with it. And it literally saves the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. And if that is all you knew about Joseph's story, you'd be like, cool story. Cool story. But the journey to get from his birth all the way to the end of the story Man, we can't miss that story. His story is a story about when life goes wrong. So the very beginning 
of Joseph's story starts long before Joseph. It starts with his great-grandfather, Abraham. Now, Abraham was 75 years old, and God tells Abraham he's 75. His wife, Sarah, is 65. God tells them that he is going to start a nation out of them. And Abraham and Sarah, at 75 and 60, don't even have any children. Hey, God, if you're going to start a nation, you might should start with a family. And it takes 25 years for this promise from God to Abraham to come into fruition. When Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old, they have their firstborn son, Isaac. Isaac grows up and he has a son named Jacob. Jacob grows up and he has 12 sons. In fact, Jacob is renamed Israel. And these 12 sons of whom Joseph is a part of are called the 12 tribes of Israel. So if you ever wondered, like you've ever heard that term, where did the 12 tribes of Israel come? It, is, it begins with these 12 sons of Jacob. And so this lineage from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Joseph and all his brothers are, or is a term, a group that we call the patriarchs. So if you ever hear somebody talking about the patriarchs, talking about the Bible, the Old Testament, the patriarchs, they are the fathers of the nation of Israel. Who they're talking about is this kind of lineage of generations from about three or four generations, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to, to Joseph. But from the outset of Joseph's life, in his whole family tree, there was family drama. Life went wrong for Joseph before he was even born. Life went wrong. It, it's a long story, but let me say it like this. Jacob's life was kind of um, marked and shaped by tricks and deceit. Jacob himself tricks uh, tricks his brother Esau into selling him his birthright or giving him his birthright. He tricks his father Isaac into giving him his blessing as the firstborn son. And then later on when Jacob grows up, he's tricked into which girl he's supposed to marry. He falls in love with a girl named Rachel, but he is tricked into marrying her sister Leah. But the story works out, and Jacob fulfills his vows and his promises to Leah, and then he's later uh, allowed to marry Rachel. Now, let me just stop right here for a moment. This is the Old Testament. Uh, marriages were very different back then. It was a very different world. It was very common for men to have multiple wives. There were simply way more women than there were men. And so, let me just say that. Cause it's about to get worse. Um, uh, I mean, you saw already, it's a recipe for disaster, right? I mean, do you think Jacob has a favorite wife, like the one he's in love with and not the one he was tricked to marry? But Rachel, his beloved, struggled to have children. Leah had six children, six sons. So Rachel has this idea. She's like, hey, um, since I can't have children, here's my maidservant. You can have children with her, and they'll sort of be in my line. So she gives, Jake, she gives Jacob her servant, and her servant has two children. Leah's like, well, if you're going to give 
him your servant, I'm going to give him my servant. So Leah says, you can have my servant, and you can have some children with her. And Leah's servant has two children. Okay, listen, this is not a marriage series. Can I just say that? <laughs> this, is not a mar- this is not a model for marriage. So you can see it's already messed up. So right now, if you can count, that's six by Leah, two by Rachel's servant, two by Leah's servant. So there's ten children, but then finally, 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 Rachel has a son, Joseph. Jacob's beloved wife has her firstborn son. And later on, many years later, has another son named Benjamin, and she dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. So you can just already sense the family dynamic is messy and toxic and I mean, you can already sense that, right? There was a favorite wife who had two children. You can imagine Jacob's affection toward Joseph and Benjamin is different than perhaps those other 10. Now remember I told you the end of the story that he saved the world, but Genesis 37 starts really the beginning of Joseph's story and he's far from saving the world. He's a 17-year-old kid. Benjamin was much younger at the time, but at this point in Joseph's life, at 17, he was a bit of a tattletale. He would go to his father, and he would give bad reports about his other 10 brothers. You're not going to believe what they said. You're not going to believe what they did. You're not going to believe what, they're, they're just doing all this when they misbehaved. So naturally, naturally, the family dynamics went from bad to worse. Listen to what it says in Genesis 37, verses 3 through 4. And if you got your Bibles, you want to open up to Genesis 37. And if you're home uh, watching, or if you uh, want to take one at the bookshelves, if you're, a guest, if you're a guest here in the room and you don't have a Bible, we want to give that to you. Hey, by the way, my name's Carter, and I'm pastor at Mountaintop. I'm so pumped you're here for this series. I think God's going to do an awesome thing through us. Let's look at what it says in Genesis 37. Now, Israel, and this is... When it says Israel, Jacob, the, sometimes it goes back and forth. Sometimes it calls him Israel, but it's not talking about a nation at this point because there's not really a nation. But he's kind of the father of this nation. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Not a parenting series either, by the way. Because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him, or a coat of many colors, or an amazing technicolor dream coat. He made him this coat. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. They hated Joseph. They couldn't speak... They, they couldn't say anything good about Joseph. And let me, so can we just kind of name this for what it is? Sometimes the wrong is wrong before we even come along. Sometimes there is wrong before we even come along. Sometimes your family injects dysfunction into you before you are even born. Sometimes there is family dynamics, family dysfunction, family toxicity running through our veins before we are ever born. 
And that's kind of the family Joseph is born to. He is born into an unhealthy system of favorites and beloved and tricks. He is trying to live a healthy life in an unhealthy system. And this is such an important part of Joseph's story that I just want us to own because he is going to have to fight this throughout his life. But I believe this is so true for us, and I want you to know this, that your origin story doesn't have to be the only story. Some of you were born into very difficult situations. Some of you have some family history, some family background that you had no part in, but it just, it just put dysfunction on you. It put unhealth running through your veins because of where you, where the, where you came from, the family that you have had to deal with. But here's what I want to tell you that you can learn from Joseph and where you can have hope is that your origin story doesn't have to be the only story. Just because you have a story that has toxicity or unhealth or dysfunction into it, you do not have to live into it. You have a choice. You don't have to respond to the drama. You can write another story. God has a better story for you, and he had a better story for Joseph. He had a calling. He had a purpose. In fact, he had a dream for Joseph, and he gave Joseph two dreams. Now, these weren't the kind of dreams that you and I have. These are prophetic dreams. Like our dreams are, I was on an airplane and everybody was wearing the same shirt. You know what I mean? Like, what does this mean? These are prophetic dreams. The first dream Joseph has is he's had, he and his brothers are out, you know, getting sheaves of grain. And he tells his brothers, he's like, hey, we're, I had this crazy dream. We were doing sheaves of grain. And all of a sudden, my sheaf stood up straight, and all 11 of your sheaves bowed down and worshiped mine. I wonder what that means, guys. And listen to what Genesis says. Listen to what his, how his brother said. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And at this point, Joseph's thoughts, this was probably a mistake. Do you intend to rule over us? And then it says this, and they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. They hated it even more. But then he has another dream. And this dream, his brothers aren't only involved, his parents are involved. This dream, he, he, he is in the dream. And the sun, moon, and 11 stars are bowing down to him. And he goes and tells his dad, he's like, hey, dad, I had this awesome dream. And listen to what his father says. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? I mean, nobody likes these dreams. Nobody likes what he's saying. But they're from God. They're a purpose. Somehow, someway, God seems to be calling Joseph to leadership, calling him to authority, calling him to, to rule in some manner as part of God's plan. But God's plans don't always pan out, do they? Sometimes you feel like you got a purpose from God, you have a calling from God, and it just, it just don't quite work out the way that we thought they would. Sometime later, we don't know exactly how long, 
the 10 older brothers go off in a faraway field to do some work for their dad. And Jacob, which I guess ever, you know, he's kind of gotten over the dream and the little, you know, deal with Joseph there. And he sends Joseph. He says, I want you to go check on your brothers and uh, see how they're doing. And, um, but when they see Joseph in the distance, the 10 brothers devise a plan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached him, they plotted to kill him. It's one way to solve it. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Wow. You see the animosity. You see the, the hate. Joseph has a dream, <clears throat> but it's not in the best of an environment for that dream to come true, and everything is going wrong. His, even his family is turning against him, and here's something that we learn about Joseph that he's coming up to right here for the first time that he is going to come against over and over over the next few weeks as we see his story. He's experiencing it, and we're going to experience it. That is, there is so much out of our control. We don't get to determine. We don't get to determine our family. We don't get to determine the family we're born into, the family systems, the family structures that we're a part of, the family dynamics. We don't get to determine them. Joseph didn't get to determine that he got born into a dysfunctional, unhealthy system where his dad had a favorite wife, and it happened to be his mom, and he was a favorite kid, and that caused his brothers to hate him. Joseph, get, get, he didn't get to do anything about that. He couldn't control that one bit. You don't get to control your purpose. We don't get to control what God wants us to do, what God calls us to do. Joseph had a calling. Joseph had a purpose from God. They were dreams from God. And not everybody liked them. But we don't get to determine that. We don't get to determine our circumstances. And we're going to see Joseph's circumstances just go from bad to worse. And we don't get to determine all the external things that happen around us. The economy, uh, the, the community, our job. There's so many things. Our health. There are so many circumstances that we don't get to determine. And we don't get to determine the decisions and actions of others. And Joseph is going to come up against, right now, he's got a family and an others. His brothers are the others who have a decision to make, and he doesn't get to control any of those. So what I want you to know is that, like Joseph, the first step toward your dream, toward the dream God has for you, toward the plan has, God has for you, it might be a disaster. Family might try to shun you. You might make matters worse. We have to decide if we're going to be about actions or reactions, if we are going to be about forward focus or backward focused on what we can't change. So at this point, one of the ten brothers kind of emerges as a little bit of a good guy. Reuben, who is the oldest brother, says, Guys, listen, um, I don't think we should kill him. Uh, you know, listen, do we really want that hanging over our conscience? Um, well, why don't you just, and he kind of comes up with this idea, but he's kind of scheming a, a rescue plan. He's like, why don't we just throw him in this cistern here, which is this big kind of like, you know, hole where they would, 
where water where they would store. Just throw him down in this cistern. And his plan was, after they go away, that he was going to come back and rescue Joseph. And we don't know why or somewhere part of the story. They do exactly what Reuben says. But at some point, Reuben leaves the other nine. And I don't know what he's going off doing. There's not really those details in the story. But while Reuben is away, this is what Genesis 37 says happens in the story. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? I mean, after all, guys, there's no money in murder. What will we gain? I've got a better idea. Because they see kind of a traveling band of Midianites, Ishmaelites coming in the distance. And they have an idea. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands after them. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, and we would all feel so much better by selling him into slavery than murdering him. Wouldn't you guys, right? Listen, this is sick. This is dysfunction. And they all agreed, that's a great plan, Judah. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben comes back, and can't find his brother, he can't believe it. The other brothers take his iconic coat, the coat of many colors, this ornate robe, and they put animal blood all over it, and they kind of shred it and rip it. They take it back to their their, their dad with this grand story. Hey, well, you know, we found this. Did you send Joseph after us? I mean, we just, what do you make of this? And this is how Jacob replies. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, This put on sackcloth, which was a, a way that they mourned and mourned his son for many days. I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And now life has not just gone wrong for Joseph, it's gone wrong for Jacob. Deceit, betrayal, arrogance. This was not supposed to be how the dream went. God, I thought you had a purpose You ever ask yourself that question? Like when you're sitting right in the middle of the mess when life goes wrong, when the world is spinning out of control and there are so many circumstances that you can't fix and you didn't cause. You think Joseph riding in shackles with these Midianite travelers was asking that question? But here's the lesson that we learned from the very first part of Joseph's story. Because remember, I already told you the end of the story. But this is what we learned from part one. There may be pain on the path to your purpose. You already know the end of the story. He's going to fulfill his purpose. 
He's going to be a leader. He's going to be a ruler. He's going to be second in command of the most powerful kingdom on earth. But there may be pain on the path to your purpose. God might have a grand purpose for you. I believe he has a good plan for your life, for every single person in this room's life, for every single person watching's life. But that does not mean that we will get to detour pain on the path to our purpose. There may be pain on the path to our purpose. There are no promises that it will be easy. Sometimes life will go terribly wrong. So how does Joseph even, even end up in a, with an opportunity to potentially get into a better situation in Egypt? And toward the very end of verse 37, we get a little hint of a possibility of an opportunity. It says this in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Well, the dream hasn't been killed, but it sure is hard to see how it will ever be fulfilled. But Joseph just might not have known that there may be pain on the path to your purpose. Life happens. The world is broken. Sometimes life goes wrong. Every single one of us has had a season when life goes wrong. But do not believe for one instance when this broken world tries to break you that God has given up on you. Do not believe it. What I want to ask you is would you just trust, would you just trust when you feel like life is all going wrong, Life is breaking you when you feel like you're in the pit just like Joseph was. Would you trust that there is a God who is writing a better end of the story even when, even when you are in the absolute worst part of the story? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, um, we all go through times, God, where everything goes wrong. And we can't see, we can't see your purposes. We can't see what you're doing. We ask, like, where are you, God? And Lord, we would just, I would just pray today that even when we are in the life going wrong part of our story. <laughs> that we would put our trust in a God who has promised to be with us, who is writing a better story. If we would just hang on. And I'm praying for brothers and sisters today who were at the end of their rope. 
I'm praying that you would give them faith and courage to just hang on. In Jesus' name, amen. Corey's going to share a song with us.